Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Hey, Cliff. Hey, Bobo. How are you doing today? Good, man. How's it going with you? It's going all right. It was a little bit stressful today. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, that, I was down at the museum most of the day. I got a very panicked phone call around noon saying that the guys who were working on the cement uh, broke a water main. And uh, yeah, so the, the building was flooding. So oh. that was a, a charming way to start my day. Was it just water or sewage too? It was just water, thankfully. Yeah, um, we we're, we had to. Of course, we're making the bathroom, um, you know, Americans with Disability Act accessible, you know, ADA accessible. So we had to cut away part of the cement, and um, there was an unknown pipe down there that actually went to nothing, um, oh. but it's it still had water in it apparently. So um, yeah, so. You should just get a faith healer to stand at your doorway and cure people as they walk in. <laughs> I suppose, right? Yeah, that might be a good way to go. Um, actually, what we did, we uh, well, what we need to do, I guess, is hire somebody who's good at divining rods and come out and figure <laughs> out what, where the hell are the other pipes so this doesn't happen again. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this will probably cheer people. We got a great witness for tonight's show. What's going on? Well, I got Sam going to come on. I met up at the Washington Bigfoot conference we were at. And he and his wife, you know, we were just talking about how to, you know, you hear about all these crazy stories about people getting attacked, you know, online, these other podcasts. I'm like, we almost never talk to anyone that has anything hectic like that. Like we have scary things happen, but nothing physical. And then, yeah, it it does seem like a lot of the other podcasts uh, gravitate towards the scary stories. And um, I would have to assume they're cherry picking those. You know, they just want the more tension-filled ones. You know, kind of like the 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 TV thing. You know, the, the even the Finding Bigfoot, you know, logo. They're ah, scary monster stuff. But you know, that's not the usual case. Right, but I mean, we rarely talk to anyone that has actual contact with them. Like we, you know, they growl and throw things and scream and bluff charge you, but them actually doing anything to you is so rare. Well, I met a guy, he and his wife, and they were, you know, I'm talking to them. They're a normal, nice couple. And all of a sudden, he starts telling me about his encounter. I'm like, oh, my God. And you can tell he's you know, honest guy. He'll, he can tell you about his background, you know, his whole deal. But I got him on the line, and he's ready to go. Hey, Sam, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, Sam, this is Cliff. Hey, Cliff. Hi, Sam. How you doing, man? I'm pretty good. Excellent, excellent. I bet you're surprised because I'm a lot taller on radio. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm better looking. <laughs> you know, we both had the face for radio. That's why we're doing this. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like a little bit about your background? I lived in Carson, Washington. I've owned property here for uh, quite a while. 
throughout my history here of hunting and fishing in the area, I was telling Bobo that, you know, we've had some weird things happen to us, but nothing you can outright pinpoint say, yeah, this is an encounter or this is what happened. But if you look back on everything after the things that have happened to us in the last few years, you can kind of say, you know what, we've probably had a few more encounters than what we wanted to believe. So I've, I've owned property here for quite a while for since, uh, 2000. And, uh, I, I was in the military for a while. So I used to move back and forth between Tacoma and here. I just finished up 22 years in the military and now I'm just going to school for, uh, further my education. But you weren't just an average grunt, Sam. You actually have some quite advanced training. You have other, uh, things in your background that make you a particularly good witness. I don't know. You can't get too specific, but you were in, I don't want to say what, which branch you're in or the same, to come up, tell everyone what branch that is. Yeah, I was in the Army. I was with uh, Special Operations for 18 of the 22 years. Yeah, Cliff, he was in combat, and he was also a canine instructor, so he knows animals real well. And My last seven years, I was a uh, canine handler, and uh, so I was five years as a handler, and then I, I worked a couple years as the uh, assistant kennel master. In the military itself, so like you worked with yes. government dogs, basically. Yes, yes. Now you, you did uh, intensive training, and uh, and now did you actually have to go abroad and deal with you know um, problems across the oceans and things like that, or um, were you mostly working domestically, or where, could you tell us any bit about that, or is that all like top secret stuff? No, no. I have several tours to Afghanistan. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. But when he gets into his story clip, so for him, you know, combat vet, special forces, you know, this guy's got nerves of steel. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, and special training too. One of the things I'd like to learn about any potential witness is if they've had training in observation, because so many people don't realize that observation in itself is a skill, um, and communicating what you've seen. So do you have any training like that, uh, that you can share with us? Uh, yes, I was on a sniper observing team for three years, and uh, while I had a stint in Japan, I went to the, uh, I had some exposure to the Malaysian tracking course. Now, um, that would be fantastic for um, estimating distances and sizes and speeds and that sort of thing, right? Yes. Okay, because again, you're talking to a guy like, like I'm not a military guy. I say it all the time as a joke, but it's true. I was kicked out of Boy Scouts, and that's about as much military <laughs> training as I had. Um, I got to second class, and they had enough of me. I just didn't do well there. Um, so again, these are real, honest questions. I'm not being facetious at all. Um, so in the in the tracking training that you had, uh, what kind of things were you specifically trained to observe there? Well, most of it was uh, experience with jungle tracking and. Uh, like, you know, uh, secondary sign, ground sign, uh, stuff like that. And uh, it was kind of frustrating because when you're the point man going, it's like you don't see anything. But when you're the secondary man, it's like you could see everything behind them. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah. mostly, you know, how to, you know, some of the South African techniques of tracking sticks and stuff like that, which I've, you know, I didn't have much use for that in the military, my deployments, as much as I thought it would. But for elk hunting, it was amazing stuff, especially when the, the herd bull would break off. If he busted the herd, I would, you know, make a tracking stick. I'd find his stride. And, uh, you know, it didn't work all the time, but about half the time I could catch up with him again. But still, you know, getting a chance at a shot, you know, was something else. But, you know, I, I did practice those skills during my hunting seasons a lot. Now, this training, this tracking training, 
Um, were you uh, specifically trained in tracking humans? Yes. Well, fantastic. So you have been specifically trained for tracking the big guys and for observational skills as well. Um, yes. So that would right off the bat make you a fantastic witness, like most military people are, or police officers, for example, who have oftentimes similar training. I just like to get that out of the way just to show that we can, in fact, listen to your estimates and realize that they are probably much closer to the truth than, um, you know, some just a lay person driving down the road who sees or hears something and trying to communicate it. Yeah, he's had more than one encounter, Cliff. Oh, well, just start wherever you want. Lay it on me. I'm listening. The one that Bobo was interested the most was the uh, the truck incident we had. It was uh, May of about 2015. What happened was is that there was uh, some aircraft in the area, and I, I think the Air Force was testing something, or there was 160th was flying around. I don't know. But uh, our friend of ours, Eric, was kind of interested in that, and he was over one afternoon. It was getting dusk. And I said, well, if they're flying around at night, we can get a better view of them up on Big Butte. There's an old clear cut with an overlook. So basically, we, we started heading up there, but the uh, they just opened the gate on that road around April. So not a whole lot of traffic had been up and down it. And so as I was heading up the hill to the overlook, the brush, the spring brush was encroaching on the road. So I was only going about three or five miles an hour. In fact, we had pulled the mirrors on, on the truck. And... Uh, so we were we were about a third of a mile from the, the overlook. All of a sudden, something came crashing through the passenger side window. The next thing I know, I've been struck in the back of the head. My face went right into the steering wheel, and I was knocked out for a couple seconds. And when I came to, my wife, who was in the passenger side, was in the back seat, and she was complaining that she felt like she had some teeth knocked out. And uh, I told her to keep her mouth shut because if she had lost teeth, then we should, you know, we, we want to recover them. So in case we have to put them back. And my initial reaction was after everything happened was if to my initial gut feeling was a, a, an evergreen tree, a fir tree had just fallen onto the cab of the truck. And I thought that's what happened. That's what pushed me down into the steering wheel. And as I got my senses back and I looked around, I was like, okay, so what happened? And then my wife was bleeding on her right arm and she had a strike mark right on her armpit, right on the side and on her tricep. And, uh, and actually what, what was in her mouth was the glass from the shattered window. So my buddy Eric was in the backseat and nothing, he was okay. He was just like, whoa, what was that? You know, we, we couldn't figure out what happened. And then so once we ascertained there was no more injuries and I, was, I had a little bit of a scrape in the back of my head. It was bleeding a little bit, but I, I wasn't that bad. And we got out, we looked around, I had a couple flashlights, we started looking around, and on the high bank side, the mountain side of the road, there was a log, and uh, I noticed on the passenger side door, there was scrapings or uh, peelings of uh, alder bark, like a, you know, like a, a younger alder tree has that green, that green bark on it, they're not quite mature yet. We found a, a log on the side of the road, right next to the truck. And it was on the small end, it was seven to eight inches round. And on the big end, it was between 10, 11 inches round. It was about 16 to 18 feet long. It hadn't been cut with a saw or chopped with an ax, but it, 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 the, the bottom end looked like it was pulled apart. It was all like a wind blown. And then the upper end looked like it was just sheared off. So the best we can ascertain that somehow this log instantly came through the passenger side window, struck at us, and was pulled out. 
I mean, this, all this happened in like a second and a half or two seconds. It was that quick. And, and, the, and it was a pretty green log. So for its size, it was heavy. Uh, me and Eric picked it up and it was, it was, I, I don't see how anybody could have just grabbed this thing and shoved it through the window. And, that, and that's, that's what happened. What did Eric see? He didn't see anything. He just saw the, 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 the log come in and out. So your window was not broken. No, but, her, but hers was. Yes. There was a strike mark on my, on my window, but it didn't have enough force to break it. I just yeah. sent you that picture cliff. Oh, there's photographs. Yeah, There's that's a, the picture my wife took for the insurance. If you look at the picture, the, the right side mirror, because we'd pulled the mirrors in because of the brush, the mirror was inside the cab by my feet. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm looking at the photograph right now. Um, there does seem to be a little bit of damage on the door, as you mentioned. The, the glass yeah. is blown out, and the rear view mirror is totally missing. Side view mirror. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the side view mirror. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah the, wow. And if so I had been driving up that road at like 25 miles an hour, like I normally do when it's cleared out, I would have just assumed I snagged a, 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 a tree or a branch on the side of the road and it was an accident. But I mean, just go, I mean, I was crawling up that hill because my, my wife's always yelling at me about driving the truck in the brush and getting it all scratched up. So I was going slow because she was with me at four or five miles an hour. I don't see how this, I mean, as soon as it caught on the mirror or hit the glass, I would have stopped. I mean, this thing was just instantaneous. I mean, it all happened and so quick. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had a lot of experience with driving through stuff like that. And, you know, you're crawling those conditions. It doesn't come all the way through. Hit the driver no. from the passenger side and come back out. No, and if it was a green tree still on the ground or something, or even one that had freshly fallen over, it still would have had the bushy head on it and all the branch. I mean, there was there was no branches on this log. There was, I mean, there was a couple six inches or four inches maybe two or three of those, but it, like it didn't have any other branches on it. Like it had been stripped or the brushy part of the tree had been removed at the top. And this whole thing lasted about a second. The guy in the back, uh, he saw, he, you mentioned that he specifically saw the log though. He barely saw it. it. He said it was a blur. It was a blur. And now the, at that point, when you get out of the car, okay, your wife is bleeding, but she's okay. You're getting out there and you find this log is that the point where you kind of put something together and say, well, this must be it because there's nothing else? No, I thought, okay, so immediately me and Eric and my wife were talking and we were like, well, maybe somebody has a grow up here and we tripped some sort of booby trap and it's a night you can't see. So then, you know, um, my wife needed attention. So we went back down to the house and then we were thinking she might have to go to the hospital for stitches, but it had started to scab up, so it was. It looked a lot worse bleeding than it was. So she dressed the wound herself, and by then it was, you know, it was getting pretty late at night. And me and Eric were hanging out, and we basically waited. We waited till daylight, and then took the jeep up there and went right there to the site. And we could find no evidence that anybody had even been in the area. There was no cordage. There was no. There was nothing to indicate we tripped a booby trap. There wasn't even footprints in the area. And we walked the third of a mile up to the overlook and there wasn't even, there wasn't even tire tracks or anything. And yeah, we, we have no explanation for how it happened or, or, or I, I couldn't figure it out. It wasn't too far from there. You had your encounter where, you, where it was confirmed there were Bigfoots in the area, correct? No, it's not. As the crow flies, it's maybe five or six miles. Bobo sent me the map and I'm not going to say where this is. You specifically asked yes. to kind of keep the, the, the place quiet, but I have had encounters very close to there. Okay, I believe that, 100%. So it was the next year. We used to hunt over by Black Creek Swamp, over on the uh, west side of Indian Heaven. And 
some guy shot a massive seven by eight bull and it was in some magazine. And then all of a sudden there was like a thousand guys in there during archery and rifle season. And it just wasn't as good for us in our old spot. So what happened is the rainbow festival happened in Skookum Meadows and it kind of displaced all those elk out of that area. Yeah. That, that kind of screwed up a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to take that back road to the 25 over to, to Tacoma to go to post sometimes. And at two or three in the morning, I was seeing like hundreds of elk on the side of the road. So we, we started poking around in there and I said, well, you know, nobody goes deep in this plateau and I'm seeing a lot of elk sign and everything. So we hunted it, uh, for a little bit and we, we actually, we were hunting it a couple years before the truck incident, and then finally we made the decision to put a spike camp in there and hold in there so we could stay later towards evening. Cause that's where we were seeing all the elk in there. The year we took all our spike camp stuff in, it was kind of, uh, there were some weird things that happened on the way in. Um, I had a game cart and we, we piled stuff on it. And I, I, earlier that summer I had cleaned out the trail in there. So we were rolling the cart, but then there's a decommissioned road. We roll the cart on and then we take a shortcut through some dark timber and there's some blowdown in there. So you can't really get the cart through. So we broke the cart down and shuttled things through there. And while we were doing that, there were some huge thumping noises. You, you ever been up on a, on an elk and they jump up on their feet. It, it's like that, but I mean, it was a lot more voluminous and it was just more booming. Like it just seemed to carry. And we heard that like two or three times. My wife was on the other end of the trail by herself, and there were several coyotes that like came really, really super close to her. Um, and she's been around coyotes before hunting and stuff, but for some reason this kind of freaked her out, and she it just said it felt weird. So, anyways, I just kind of dismissed all that, and we got our spike camp in, and then a month later, elk season started. We were in there, and uh, we set up our tent. We had our camp, and the pattern of life why we had the tent there was usually when you came to camp in the afternoon, you were done for the day. And that day had been extremely wet. I was soaked to the bone. So I went to camp. Um, I started a fire. I hung up all my wet stuff and I changed into dry stuff. But I looked at my, my watch and it was only like three twenty. My buddy is still out hunting. And if, uh, he kicks something up, I should be out in the timber and, you know, to put my effort in. So I was thinking about it and I was like, well, I could just take our trail over the chewed up asphalt decommissioned road over to the dark timber. And I could stay pretty dry because it stopped raining. So that's what I decided to do. And as I crossed the road, crossed through the brush line into the dark timber, I walked in there about 30, 40 yards. And I was at this intersection where there were a couple blown down trees. And then all of a sudden, right in front of me, probably about 50, 60 yards, something jumped up. And I brought my gun up, and then all of a sudden it took off to my left south. There was three or four shooting lanes, and I, I didn't get my scope on it because it was moving so fast. But through those shooting lanes, I got a good look at it. And uh, I, my brain just kind of misfired because I couldn't process what I was seeing. It was about my size on two feet, and it was moving like with no sound, and it was gone through the timber. And it it was just weird. And uh the thing that stuck out to me the most was the, the hands, the spoon shaped hands, the, the had a, you know, conical shaped head. And there was like a, a white or a gray patch of fur on the, on the left shoulder, left scapula that, that I remember. And yeah, so that's what I saw. And I, to this day, I, 
you know, there's only one thing that it could be. So, um, I got back to camp and I didn't tell my buddy that night. I was kind of freaked out. I didn't get much sleep. And if my buddy hadn't been there, I would have walked out that night. But there's there's kind of a bravado thing there, you know, and I, our buddy Eric joined us the next night because he was only hunting on the weekends. And so when they were both there that night, the next evening, I told them about what I saw. They kind of said, okay, well, whatever you saw, you saw, but they, you know, they took it with a grain of salt. And as we were getting ready for bed, then something's just started making these weird calls behind camp about 100, 150 yards away. And it was like three or four calls and that really unnerved everybody. Um, and then the, the day after that, um, I decided to kind of hunt close towards camp and I went down to a crossing point where I know the elk cross and I sat there for about a couple hours. And then when I stood up and I took a step forward to move out about 30, 40 yards away beyond where I could see in the tree line, a tree got pushed down towards me a huge tree and there was no wind. It was that typical misty fog you get in that area that time of year. I mean, there, there, there was dead calm and I don't know what caused the tree to go down, but I mean, it just, the, the timing was impeccable. As I stood up and took a step, that tree got knocked down. That's what happened to me. What year was that? That was in 2016. That was the year after the truck incident. The thing that struck me weird about this is if it was getting away from us, it should have dropped right off the canyon, and I would have just seen it just for a second. But this thing kind of angled like a 45 degree to my left away from me, then actually cut towards our camp. That's what I thought was weird. Being a trained military sort of dude, um, you, you kind of have to expect these things are using your own tricks against you. Yes. Like they're, they're going to be observing you. And the only way you're going to accidentally run across one is if it makes a mistake, if it has an accident. Um, and yeah. you come at it from an unexpected angle. Yeah. And then in the two years we had the spike camp in there, that was like, that was out of norm. Like normally when I came to camp, I was done for the day, but, but I, I just happened to show up early. Cause I was, I was soaked. We had been raining all morning the brush and yeah. So I was miserable. So I decided to go back and put some dry stuff on since I had the counter in there. When I go in and restock the spike camp or I start poking around in there, I was telling Bobo, I just. I just leave offerings when I'm in there. I leave apples, granola bars. There's a rock right by our spike camp, and I just put stuff out every time I go in and out of there. Do you find crumbs or any sign of being eaten there? By you know, most animals leave some sign of you know that it ate there, or is the whole thing just gone? No, every time I've left something, everything's gone. There isn't one speck of crumb. Well, and then um, when you had that incident with the tree, you grew up in Washington, so you obviously heard about Bigfoot as a kid. In your you uh, you weren't the only family member to have an incident with a Sasquatch. No, and uh, my dad never told me and my brother this, but so when I had this incident, I called him and I said, "Hey, I had something happen, and I don't know exactly how to deal with it." And I told him, uh, "You know, people are gonna think I'm crazy." And that's when he finally told me at, at you know 42 years old that he saw one right on the other side of uh, Swift Reservoir, and they were skipping school in high school and they were walking up this trail to a, a, a small lake they knew for, to go fishing. And they thought they jumped a bear in the trail and it stood up. And he says he flat out saw on plain as day right in the afternoon, right there on the trail to the lake. And it took off up the hill. Like I said, you know, me and my brother hunting and fishing with him all our lives. And he has never told us that story. He hasn't even told his brothers that story. 
when I was younger, we used to hunt over by South Prairie Lake because deer and elk season overlapped for a week. And while we were hunting over there, that was on the, uh, the eastern side of the big lava bed. And we'd go up there during the weekends because the season was so long. Well, my dad didn't have work Thursday and Friday, so he went up early. So Thursday afternoon, there was a clear cut behind camp. And he walked out there on that clear cut, and he was watching the clear cut. And it's like something just came up behind him and shoved him and shoved his hat off. And there was a big mud print on the back of his hat when it happened. And when he jumped up and turned around, he said there was like nothing there. That was that same weekend when we and my brother got there Friday. Friday afternoon, we went about a mile down the road to a clear cut they just finished. We went down there to cut firewood. And my dad was running the chainsaw for about 40 minutes while me and my brother were loading up the little utility trailer with firewood. Right on the edge of the clear cut, about 200, 250, 300 yards up the hill, a tree got pushed over right into the clear cut just as he cut the saw. So I asked my dad, I said, what the hell is that? And he goes, well, that could be a bear scratching his back or pushing over. And I had a bear tag and, you know, I was 13 years old, so I wanted to get a bear. So I grabbed the 20 gauge and a handful of slugs and I ran up the hill and uh, didn't see any sign of a bear. But on the edge, there was that real thick, gnarly maple vine. All the root wads of probably about 20 or 30 maple vines were pulled out of the ground like something was throwing a fit up there. And it just unnerved me. And uh, I went back down the hill and I told my dad what I saw. And he said, well, it must have been that bear just going crazy in there. And I was like, okay. And yeah. And then that same year, the game warden came into our camp. There was about four or five mushroom pickers lost on the lava bed. And there was a gated road that punched out in the lava bed. And he went and opened it for us. And he asked us if we could go out there with our lights on and hop the horn to see if we could attract some of them to us. And we got out there on the end of this landing. And there was a bunch of eye shine. There was three or four sets of eye shine, probably about, I don't know, about 60, 70 yards away. Me and my brother, you know, the flashlights back then weren't that good, but we could see the eye shine. And there was a rock knob there. And I remember me and my brother were pointing the lights right at that. And one of two of the eye shines disappeared. And then one of them rose probably the equivalent of seven or eight feet in the air and then disappeared. And, hmm. uh, we, we could see the rocks at the bottom. So we were like, it wasn't an elk standing up cause it was way too tall. And then my brother always mentions that as something weird that kind of unnerved him. My neighbor, he, uh, he, uh, sells firewood and, uh, he had some guys, that bow hunt and they're his regulars. Like every September they buy almost like two cords of firewood from him for their bow camp. And it was a few, I'm going to say maybe this was four or five years ago. He was telling me about this uh, around new year's one time. And these guys one year were, were, were dead serious. They said, Hey, you know, you live out here. What do you think about Bigfoot or all that? And he, he's lived here his entire life and he, he thinks it's possible, but he's never seen one. And there's no proof. So he's one of those guys that you have to see proof to prove it to him. And, um, but these guys said, well, over where we're bow hunting, we're having issues with them. We're, we're running into them. And this year, every guy is carrying a bigger pistol so that if we see one, we're going to shoot it. And if we get it down, you know, we want to cut the head off or the, in the hand. And we want to know if, if need be, if we could store it in your freezer at your house. And these guys were serious. They were talking to him about this. These guys, you know, they for years they've been buying firewood from them and they never said anything about it. Then all of a sudden one year they were, you know, their tone, their their tenor had told changed on the, you know, the whole subject of hunting up there. And that was in the area of uh, Lone Butte. 
Oh yeah. yeah again, there's a group of them up there. Um, yeah, that, that entire area. Cause you know, it's, it's a Indian heaven wilderness area. Um, yeah. that whole area plus or minus it's probably 10 miles on each side is red hot. It's as hot as you're going to get anywhere for a Bigfoot place, you know? Got it. Well, you know, um, uh, if you ever do get one and I'm, I'm not really for killing one of these things. Um, but, uh, I understand that also it must happen to prove the species. But, uh, if you do get one, I live at right outside of Portland, man, let me know. I'll come up and I'll do everything I can to legitimize the, the find and get you in touch with the people who need to know about this sort of stuff. Well, me and my wife have discussed this and I'm, honestly, I don't think I'm ever, I never, I don't think I'll ever pull the trigger on one, even if it happened again. I just, these things are pretty sneaky. Obviously they've been around me my entire time roaming around in the woods. And if you make them angry, I don't, I think there's a good chance if you, if you make them angry enough, you, you may have something happen to you. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then that That's, one that calls around your camp, do you really think it's alone? Do you think it's talking to itself? I don't yeah, think so. Exactly. I, I think, That's, I could think that, yeah. There's more than one around. Yeah. I think if you just don't bother them, then they, they won't really bother you. That's just kind of what I've learned. <laughs> yeah. But, but there is no more dangerous an animal than a scared person with a gun. Um, yes. so these other guys who are hunting you know, if one does a bluff charge or something, it's a bead on it, you know? That that's yeah. the way this that's the way this whole mystery I think is probably going to end like a, a terrified hunter um, who doesn't yes. who thinks he has no other choice basically yes yeah but then also is also willing to endure the public ridicule and all the scrutiny to come along with it because we have talked to people that have claimed to have killed them but they said they look too human or they just they thought about the repercussions of my God I'm gonna be the guy that shot Bigfoot and what's that gonna do to my life you know so. It's odd for me to hear you say, Sam, you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone after you had a log shoved through your car window. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other thing with that is, is that there was some local guys that engage in a lot of poaching and a lot of nonsense. And for all you know, it, you know, maybe we're just lumped in with those guys and, you know, there's, there's angst there. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you but, drive a similar car or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so that, that's the kind of the way I look at it. Or maybe we were heading to something that they didn't want us to see, so they had to stop us no matter what. I don't know. Right. Well, it worked. I know they don't they don't necessarily speak English, but they sure are effective communicators. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right. They, for the most part, it's they're live and let live. But in your case, I mean, that was a pretty dramatic example of them. I mean, a pretty rare example of them being that aggressive. Yes. Yeah, it could have killed your wife. Literally could have killed your wife. Oh yeah, it could have. And yeah, it was it was just kind of weird. I mean, it's just the the way it happened and how quickly it happened. It just you, you can't wrap your hand your head around these events. You know, you try to explain it rationally and what's what you know to be true and it just doesn't work out, you know. And you, you tell people the stories and they say, "Oh, okay. Well, they know you. you they think you're telling the truth, but until they experience themselves, you know, they don't they don't believe you 100%. Yeah, it's like my friend Tom Powell says. Uh, he says uh, it's, it's impossible to convince anybody else. You can only convince yourself. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah, true that. So with all your training, have you guys ever worked with dogs tried to uh, detect cameras, like hidden cameras? Yeah, we've had training with dogs can detect cell phones and all kinds of stuff. In fact, they use those dogs in prisons to uh, locate contraband cell phones and electronics, and they can no. they can find it very easily. Are they still on the human scent on, or are they still on the electronics inside? 
if you train the dog properly, you focus them on just the electronics or a specific element that's that's uh, particular to that what you want the dog to hunt for. And we were trained on that by a, a guy that runs a, a company called Scent Logics, uh, Dr. David Adepembe, and he's been studying odor for like he's got he's got a couple doctorates, and he is he's one of the foremost experts on odor and how dogs detect things. There's been a lot of uh, professional trackers, you know, with uh, hunting dogs and tracking dogs that have said their dogs are fearless, you know, tree bears and mountain lions. But when they get on the scent of a Sasquatch, that they just melt and cower, run back to the truck, whimper, go between their legs and will not track it. What would you think would be the best kind of dog as far as bravery, agility and sense of smell would be the best dog you think most fearless to try to track a Sasquatch? Well, I had a Dutch Shepherd, so I'm very partial to Dutch Shepherds. And then my other buddies I served with would say Belgian Malinois. But both are crazy, but usually Dutch Shepherds have a little more screw looses than a Belgian Malinois. So I would say Dutch Shepherd. <laughs> okay, that's good because I would have thought, thought, thought Belgian Malinois, but Dutch Shepherd would be even crazier. That's, that's what we're looking for. So in your opinion, how hard would it be to train a dog to track Sasquatch, say if you brought it like, gorilla nesting material and chimpanzee nesting material or orangutan nesting material, you know, from a zoo and you let them smell. Do you think that would translate into tracking like another large friend, like a Sasquatch? I don't know, but if you had a, 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 a true just tracking dog trained and if the dog is just going off the disturbance, the ground sign and the ground smell, then uh, once you put him on a track and he's trained well, he'll track whatever track you put him on. It's not species specific that much. No, in fact, uh, when my dog was retired, I trained him to track elk, and I thought that was kind of fun. I we would track elk for a mile or two, and then I'd hide a tennis ball in a hoof print, and he'd pick it up, and then I'd reward him. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, if, if a tennis ball's a reward, Mikey had been the most incredible tracking dog of all time. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, uh, and I always thought that would be great to use them if I ever got one and I couldn't recover it, then I would go get him to try to, you know, last ditch effort to recover it. So, but fortunately that's, that hasn't happened. I've, I've recovered all the ones I've gone after. So that's a testament to your tracking <laughs> or shot placement. <laughs> right. Right. I guess a combination of both. Hey, uh, when I talked to you, when I talked to you earlier, son, you'd mentioned that when you, um, I'd worked with that professor, uh, David from Scent Logics, that he said that the dogs could see infrared levels of smell. Yes, that's, uh, I contacted him about that, and I believe he said it was in the far infrared spectrum in the terahertz range. It's not a very user friendly spectrum for communications or anything else. So, what he was equating this to, so like he had a lab that he could throw a rock in the river. And that lab could go underwater and pick up that specific rock. So under the conventional theory of, of odor, the dog isn't using his nose to molecularly smell the rock. So there must be something else there. And that's what he was researching. And he believes that there's a, a frequency that's rubbed off on that rock in the terahertz range that the animal can still see uh, uh, somewhere within the brain or the receptor. And we've lost that ability. So that's what we can't see. So if, if a Bigfoot exists and it can see in that range, then, you know, just walking through the brush or just handling a game camera, that would stand out to them like, you know, like a fluorescent light. And, you know, that's why they're so good at avoiding traps or uh, cameras or anything like that. I mean, you'd almost need something 
was you'd have to negate almost all the odor and then all the frequency off it to, for it to be invisible to them. This is actually light frequency in the infrared range. Yeah. And, uh, and so he has, he has proven that dogs can see in that spectrum and pick things up. Well, th that kind of piggybacks onto one of the speculations or hypotheses that it bounces, bounces around in the Bigfoot community that Bigfoots do, in fact, see into the infrared to some degree, which might enhance their night vision. So they could maybe actually – but infrared is heat, right, basically, at the end of the day? Uh, I believe so, but he's, there's something, something a little more to it. It isn't just heat because it, it, it's a, it radiates some sort of frequency. And the, the, the guy to talk to would be Dr. David Epimby because he wrote his thesis on this. So I'm just regurgitating what I learned as a handler on how he told me uh, other ways to get your dog to pick up odor and be more effective for IEDs and stuff. And that's – so I'm not as smart on it as him. I'm just kind of you know, reiterating what, how I thought I understood it. We got to talk to that guy, yeah. Uh, yes. Just because uh, things just warming up slightly – could yes. generate the same frequency and we don't even know about it. So maybe that has something to do with why uh, electronics seem to be yes. hopeless when it comes to Bigfoot in general. Just the fact that these electrons are moving around these circuits and stuff might be enough to warm it up to a certain frequency for all we know. Um, yeah, especially for all, I mean, sense. yeah, I'm, I'm a completely ignorant guy. I mean, ignorance is bliss and I'm the happiest guy <laughs> I know. So uh, it seems to me that maybe this is a, uh, an avenue for exploration. Oh yeah, when yes. he told me that, I was I was just like, my gosh, we gotta talk to this guy because. Well, did he tell you this? How long does that frequency last on something you touch? Did he tell you that? It could last like if, if something happened at night, because the the only thing that would kill odor would be UV light from the sun. So if something was touched at night, it could theoretically reside there until the sunlight hit it and slowly broke it down. Wow, that's bending my mind a little bit, trying to find the association between light frequencies and like the chemicals that would produce a scent for a dog. But if there's some relation, that's just fantastic. What an interesting thing to even like bend my mind around. Yes, and that's why his, uh, his pseudo products for explosives and drugs are so successful because that's what he has been studying and that's what he's bridged the gap. That's why you can take his, his pseudo sense, train your dog – like. Uh, when I started using his pseudoscence for IEDs and explosives, my dog's fines down in Afghanistan went through the roof. Like I was a rock star on the deployments after that. Wow. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the proof is in the pudding with that stuff. When it is, his products work 100% and he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And God, I love pudding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think uh, talking to this guy, Dr. David, I mean, he could change the whole Bigfoot searching, hunting field. I mean, something's been stopping us. And I think that is the key to it all is talking to this guy. It might be 100%. Wow. Well, you've been one of the most productive witnesses we've spoken to. Not only did we get a bunch of Class B stories and a nice, solid Class A, uh, so far our only witness who has had, like, you know, damage done to his property and wife. But, you know, you <laughs> gave us a, a new lead to go on as well. This is fantastic. Oh, yeah, no problem. And Sam, I usually say welcome to the Bigfoot Witness Club, but I also got to say to you, an unwelcome to the Bigfoot Attack Survivor Club also. <laughs> yeah, let's just hope it only happens once. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right, Sam. Hey, thank you so much for spending your time with us. We really do appreciate it. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Sam. All right. Take it easy. We'll see you this summer. All righty. Okay, bye. Wow, Cliff, how great was that? 
It was great. Fantastic witness. So, Bubba, once again, thanks for lining up a fantastic witness for another great show. Not only was he a great witness, he might be leading us to an even greater source, the guy, Dr. David, the scent expert. I mean, he might revolutionize how we search for Bigfoot. Well, one good uh, witness or one good sighting always leads to something else you didn't know. And this is a fantastic example just of that. Now we'll look for the Bobo's Fab Five follow-up questions in the comments to see what people want us to ask Sam that we neglected to. I've got a couple other questions, too. I'm going to be sure to chime in on that uh, list. Okay. I'm going to think about 10 things as soon as we hang up. Yeah, that's the way it always is, you know. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.